You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. The tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. That's a famous quote that many people recognize and attribute correctly in this case to Thomas Jefferson. However, not that many people know the exact context of this quote and what he was talking about. This is Prof. CJ, your Renaissance man for the new dark age, and this is episode 65 of the Dangerous History Podcast, Revolutionary Aftershocks Part 1, looking at Shays' Rebellion in the 1780s. Next time we'll do Part 2 of this. I was originally going to do this as a combined episode, put Shays' Rebellion and uh, also what I'm going to be covering in Part 2, which is the Whiskey Rebellion of the 1790s, into one episode, but... As I started working on it, it got long enough that I decided to break it into two. So this time will be Revolutionary Aftershocks Part 1, Shays' Rebellion. Next time will be Revolutionary Aftershocks Part 2, The Whiskey Rebellion. These two rebellions are ones that many Americans have heard of, but shockingly few really know much detail about. And these were quite big deals at the time. And I think they reveal a lot about American history uh, particularly the revolution in its immediate aftermath, and also a lot about revolutions in general. Now, the famous Thomas Jefferson Tree of Liberty quote was not, as many people might guess, from during the American War of Independence against Britain. In fact, it's from four years after that war ended, uh, four years after Britain had recognized American independence officially in a treaty. That quote actually comes from a letter that Jefferson wrote to a friend of his while he was living in Paris, working as the American ambassador there in 1787. And he was aiming that statement not against the British government, but against those who were at that time coming to power in the United States, who were seeking to craft a much more centralized and much more consciously elitist federal government, those who were becoming known around that time by the handle of Federalist. The context of this quote from Jefferson in 1787 was actually, uh, this was the immediate aftermath of Shays' Rebellion, and work was then being done to create a much more powerful federal government in America, and one of the reasons why was to prevent something like Shays' Rebellion from getting much traction in the future. So let me read you a larger excerpt from this letter from Thomas Jefferson so that you can understand more what Jefferson really meant. This famous line is so often quoted by people who don't really know what it what it's from and what it's about. And in the show notes, I'll also provide a link to the full text of the letter so you can uh, read it for yourself if you like. I'm going to be reading 
parts excerpted that are relevant to this. Uh, much of the letter is actually like, you know, mundane stuff unrelated to Shay's Rebellion or any of these ideas. You know, Jefferson just mentioning some stuff to his friend. But anyway, excerpt from Thomas Jefferson's friend, uh, sorry, from Thomas Jefferson to his friend, William S. Smith, dated November 13, 1787. Here's the, the excerpts related to what we're talking about here. Quote, I do not know whether it is to yourself or Mr. Adams, referring to uh, John Adams, by the way, I am to give my thanks for the copy of the new constitution. I beg leave through you to place them where due. It will be yet three weeks before I shall receive them from America. There are very good articles in it and very bad. I do not know which preponderate, end quote. Now, isn't that interesting right there? I, I imagine many Americans, if you ask them, um, was Thomas Jefferson involved in writing the American Constitution, would say yes. And they'd, of course, be dead ass wrong. He wasn't even in the country at the time it was being written. And uh, furthermore, most Americans would probably tell you that Thomas Jefferson was hugely unqualifiedly favorable to the United States Constitution. They might base that on his advocacy of strict uh, construction, in other words, adhering to the letter of the Constitution later in his political career. But in fact, that does not mean that he thought it was perfect or was unreservedly a good thing, as this one quote I just read you uh, indicates. Jefferson, while he liked some aspects of the U.S. Constitution, was also not happy about other aspects of it. Now, skipping down a few lines in the letter, I'll continue with my excerpt. And so th this is this is the context, right? Shays Rebellion had uh, recently been suppressed and the Constitution had been written, but had not been yet uh, ratified. Jefferson continuing, quote, wonderful is the effect of impudent and persevering lying. The British ministry have so long hired their gazetteers to repeat and model into every form lies about our being an anarchy that the world has at length believed them. The English nation has believed them. The ministers themselves have come to believe them. And what is more powerful, we have believed them ourselves. Yet where does this anarchy exist? Where did it ever exist except in the single instance of Massachusetts? And can history produce an instance of rebellion so honorably conducted? I say nothing of its motives. They were founded in ignorance, not in wickedness. God forbid we should ever be twenty years without such a rebellion. The people cannot be all and always well informed. The part which is wrong will be discontented in proportion to the importance of the facts they misconceive. If they remain quiet under such misconceptions, it is a lethargy, the forerunner of death to the public liberty. We have had 13 states independent 11 years. There has been one rebellion. That comes to one rebellion in a century and a half for each state. What country before ever existed a century and a half without a rebellion? And what country can preserve its liberties if their rulers are not warned from time to time that their people preserve the spirit of resistance? Let them take arms. The remedy is to set them right as to facts, pardon and pacify them. What signify a few lives lost in a century or two? The tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. It is its natural manure, end quote. Now, there's a lot of interesting and important stuff in that excerpt that I just read you. 
And what's most relevant here, I think, is that Jefferson actually wasn't endorsing all of the motivations of Shay's rebels. He thought they were misguided and mistaken. But nonetheless, he thought it was a good thing that these people, misguided as they may have been, rose up and violently resisted the government because in Jefferson's eyes, periodic rebellions, whether misguided or not, were vital to a people staying free. And as he said, he thought if there wasn't a rebellion, a, a significant rebellion, you know, not, not just a, a small riot in one town or whatever, but a significant rebellion. Jefferson's saying if there's not a significant rebellion about every 20 years or so, the people's freedom is going to go away. Now, ponder that. And so while he wasn't 100% in favor of Shay's rebellion, he was nonetheless supportive of the basic concept of, yes, the people absolutely should periodically rebel because even if it's over misguided, uh, even if it's based on misguided motivations and even if they're unsuccessful, it's a way of checking the government because even if the rebellion is crushed, probably if it's a significant rebellion, uh, the government will have to address at least some of the problems which sparked the rebellion in the first place, I'm guessing is his basic thinking. So if we don't rebel every couple of decades, our freedom atrophies. That's interesting. And so that famous quote about Jefferson warning about the tree of liberty needing to be watered with the blood of patriots and tyrants was not aimed at a government in London. It was actually aimed at the American government and in particular at those who had um, been, you know, trying to undo or minimize a lot of the revolutionary aspects of the American Revolution. And I see these as direct uh, aftershocks or echoes of the larger American Revolution, and that those who resisted the government in Shays' Rebellion in the 1780s and then in the Whiskey Rebellion in the 1790s clearly believed they were standing up for the values and the ideology of the American Revolution against distant, arbitrary government that did not represent them and that was harming their interests. And in fact, these people explicitly said that they thought they were doing nothing different from what groups like the Sons of Liberty had been doing in the years leading up to 1775. And Jefferson seems to have at least partially agreed with this. In other words, from the perspective of, of the rebels in these two rebellions, this is kind of like the scouring of the Shire, that chapter in the last Lord of the Rings book that I mentioned uh, back in episode 63 when I was wrapping up the American Revolution, where the hobbits come home from their quest to find that a bunch of basically socialist criminals have taken over running the Shire and uh, the hobbits decide, oh, to hell with this. Uh, you know, we've we've learned so much and become uh, so aware of our own power as a result of the big quest we just went on that uh, we're not standing for this nonsense and they overthrow the people that were ruining the Shire. So this is kind of like that. In the aftermath of the American Revolution, some Americans are not happy with the way things are going and decide in the name of the ideals of the revolution to take a stand. The only difference is that in uh, the Lord of the Rings book, in the scouring of the Shire, the hobbits are successful in restoring the liberty of the Shire. Whereas in the case of Shays Rebellion and the Whiskey Rebellion, the rebels fail. Instead of succeeding, they are crushed when they rise up against the new masters of their Shire. Now, before I get into the, the details and the narrative of Shays Rebellion, I want to talk a, a little bit about a very interesting book 
called The Anatomy of Revolution by the historian Crane Brinton, which was first printed in 1938, and then a couple of uh, revised editions were printed in in later years. And um, a concept that he talks about that's become sort of a shorthand term often used when historians are talking about revolutions. Um, It's a phenomenon you can find in pretty much every revolution in the political sense of the word revolution that I've ever looked at. And um, the concept in question is a concept called Thermidor. Thermidor. Um, And I'll explain what that means in case you don't already know. In this book, Anatomy of Revolution, which is a very interesting read, I I think it's worth looking at, um, a lot of interesting analysis, Brinton looks at four different revolutions. He looks at the English Revolution of the 1640s. He looks at the American Revolution. He also looks at the French Revolution and the Russian Bolshevik Revolution. By the way, several of you have in emails recently, kind of as I was finishing up my American Revolution series, have asked about a series on other revolutions, on on things like the Russian Revolution, the French Revolution. And absolutely, that is on my eventual to-do list. I can't. I can't say exactly when uh, I will cover those revolutions, but sooner or later, I will get around to them. Um, I would imagine those two revolutions also deserve multiple parts for sure because of their complexity and, and implications and so on. But anyway, Crane Brinton looks at these four revolutions and what he's really looking at, what he's really looking for, I should say, are, are patterns and similarities. He certainly does acknowledge there's lots of differences between all three when it comes to specifics. But what he's trying to do in this book is really look at revolution itself as a thing. So more than differences, he's looking for similarities and patterns in terms of the basic structure uh, and sequence of events and the way they unfold. Because revolutions they're never like flipping a switch. They're always multiple stages, oftentimes unfolding over multiple years and significant shifts in power and ideology, not just a single shift. So the basic pattern Crane describes, and I'd urge you to read, read the book if this sounds interesting to you so that you can get all the detail, but the basic pattern he describes is you've got an old regime, an existing government that has a lot of problems, um, and most of which are tied into inefficiency and fiscal type problems and you have various unhappy groups living under this old regime who for various reasons uh, usually for some combination of ideology and self-interest are very unhappy with the way things are and agitate for reform and these reforms they agitate for might end up in the long run looking moderate compared to what ends up happening. But at the time, the way the old regime sees these uh, these reforms that they're asking for is that they're way too radical and we can't possibly give those, uh, re- give those reforms to the people without undoing our own regime, right? And to the people who are part of the existing regime, the last thing you want to do is commit political suicide for the system that is, you know, benefiting you significantly. So... Things start to roll. The dominoes start to fall. You have a situation in which eventually the old regime is toppled in one way or another. And then generally a group of kind of moderate revolutionaries take over and they're in power for a while, but they they're not able to hold power because there's usually also a more radical group of revolutionaries who are 
more zealous in their beliefs and also more disciplined and unified than the moderates. And these advantages allow them to seize power from the, from the moderates, take over, and then they institute some sort of what's generally referred to as a reign of terror or a reign of terror and virtue. And by the way, that terminology comes directly from the radical faction of the French Revolution, the Jacobins, who, when they were in charge and uh, dragged France through the most radical parts of the revolution, they explicitly called it the Reign of Terror, or uh, the full name, the Reign of Terror and Virtue. Now, eventually, the radicals go so far that enough various other groups decide it's time to uh, take a stand against them, and the radicals get stopped overthrown somehow and replaced by a more moderate group, sometimes even a a truly conservative group. And this last step in which the revolution kind of starts off, um, you know, with the old regime we might, for lack of a better term, call on the right. And then the pendulum swings towards the center when moderate revolutionaries come to power. And then the pendulum swings far left And again, I'm not a fan of left-right terminology, but sometimes it's decent for sort of shorthand metaphors. Um, Anyway, the pendulum continues swinging leftward until it gets very radical, and then at some point the pendulum swings back towards the middle or even back a bit towards the right, right? This last step, this conservative reaction, this sort of counter-revolution against the most radical revolutionaries is oftentimes referred to by historians and other people who study revolutions by the term Thermidor. And the reason for this is because of the French Revolution. When the radical Jacobins, led by Maximilian Robespierre get overthrown and replaced by more moderate factions in France. It's during the month of Thermidor on the new revolutionary calendar that had been devised by the Jacobins. Thermidor is, I believe it's July. It's basically the hot month. It's summer, right? And they named it Thermidor. They tried to have rational reasons for all the months. Um, go look up the French revolutionary calendar sometime. Sometime it's kind of a hoot. Um, I think the the term for Spring, I forget what it is in French, but it means like, oh, flowers or something like that. Um, So Thermidor, whenever you hear in regards to revolution, something to Thermidor, uh, some reference to Thermidor, that usually means when things get to their most radical and then they snap back and there's a somewhat of a reaction or counter revolution. And so in the case of the Jacobins, they're in power, they're instituting their radical reign of terror and virtue to you know, force their revolutionary ideals on the nation, whether the people want all of it or not. And then eventually they go too far, they get attacked. And um, in the case of the the Jacobins, they get replaced by kind of a moderate revolutionary government called the Directory, um, who has a lot of trouble, and then they get overthrown and ultimately replaced by Napoleon. So again, you think of a pendulum being pulled uh, first one way and then swinging back the other way. And Britain himself also uh, uses the metaphor of a fever, which, you know, the revolutionary fever gets more and more radical, and then eventually it breaks and things start to subside a bit. And again, that's that's Thermidor when things snap uh, back against the radicals. So Britain admits repeatedly in this book that the American Revolution is the most different compared to the other three revolutions for a variety of reasons I won't get into here because of time. But he does argue that it does still constitute a revolution, even though it's not 
as dramatic and radical in many ways as the other three, and that it did overall follow the basic pattern he describes, even though it didn't go as far uh, in the extreme direction. So Britain, for example, admits that the American Revolution didn't truly have a, a really extreme reign of terror phase in the way that the other three revolutions did. But there was a version of it, like a more modest version of it, for example, in things like um, the treatment of the Tories and in the forced mobilization of Americans who were sort of on the fence or reluctant to get involved. But again, uh, Brinton argues that even though the American Revolution didn't have nearly as extreme of a radical phase as the other revolutions, there was definitely a form of Thermidor that happened in the 1780s. And I would definitely agree with that. And I, I would say that the Thermidor in the American Revolution, you can't pinpoint to any one thing, but there's sort of like multiple signposts or beacons that you can see it happening. I would argue that sort of the, the seeds of Thermidor were already planted simply with the appointment of Washington as commander in chief of the Continental Army, as I talked about back in the episodes of the American Revolution series talking about this and that the um, the Thermidorians, the more counter revolutionary people within the American independence movement, continued to gather clout both within the state governments and within the Continental Congress throughout the war as it dragged on. And a good example of this that I mentioned in one of the American Revolution episodes was the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780, which very much reflected the thinking of the more um, non-revolutionary pro-independence people in Massachusetts. It was a constitution that made the government in Massachusetts very elitist, very undemocratic, and um, very kind of authoritarian centralized in a lot of ways. But I would argue that the real heart of the American Thermidor is sort of a combination of, first, the suppression of Shays Rebellion, then uh, shortly after that, the writing and ratification of the Constitution, which created a much more powerful and centralized federal government, more elitist too. And also continuing after that with the um, setting up of the Washington administration and particularly the policies of Alexander Hamilton as Treasury Secretary and Washington's decision to wholeheartedly support most of them. And so I would argue that um, and then, of course, you know, the Whiskey Rebellion, which happens during Washington's first term and the way that that is crushed with overwhelming force, which we'll cover next episode, I would argue that by the end of Washington's first term, America has completely gone through Thermidor. The revolution is closed and in some ways has already been uh, at least partially undone. So let's talk specifically about Shays' Rebellion, which is usually dated to have existed from about August of 1786 to June of 1787. And the the best source here I'd recommend is a book by an historian named Leonard L. Richards. And the book is called Shays' Rebellion, The American Revolution's Final Battle. It's very good uh, work of serious academic history, but that's not, you know, just blatantly propagandizing for the central government or anything like that. It's it's a very fair treatment and in some cases is even a bit biased towards the rebels. 
you have to understand that in the mid-1780s, in the aftermath of the Revolutionary War, a pretty nasty economic depression hit the new United States, largely as a direct result of the war and all of the death and destruction and debts and taxes and the fact that, you know, all the thousands of men serving in the military weren't at home running their businesses or more commonly tending their farms. Things were just very screwed up. Um, The economy was kind of getting itself realigned as far as international trade went. The British mercantilist restrictions were gone, but on the other hand, that was somewhat of a mixed blessing because it also meant that the American uh, states are now outside the British Empire trading bloc. They have certain privileges that they used to have uh, when they were part of the British Empire that are now gone. And not all of the countries, all of the imperial powers that are still active in the neighborhood are treating the Americans very respectfully. The British, the Spanish, the French, in various ways, messed around a lot with America um, in the 1780s and 90s. And so you have a situation where many average people, middle and lower class people throughout uh, the United States were suffering economically in the 1780s, while a handful of wealthy elites had profited and were continuing to profit from the war and the debts uh, incurred thereby and so on. Now, one area that was among the more particularly hard-hit regions were the inland parts of New England, the sort of more western parts of New England where you start to get into the um, foothills and uh, and the mountain areas. And a place that was really having a lot of tension because of this was western Massachusetts. Like all of inland New England, its economy was, was very messed up, and it was kind of a frontier area still anyway. But... Tensions were worse there than in the other parts of New England that were also experiencing economic difficulty, because in Massachusetts, you had this state constitution that had been instituted in 1780, which very obviously rigged the state government very heavily in favor of the wealthy elites of Boston and a few of the other eastern towns um, at the expense of the little guy at the expense of the small farmers um, in general, and especially the Western small farmers in particular. These people felt like they were being economically squeezed and that they were also being disenfranchised in a variety of ways. The state government was raising taxes in order to pay on the state's war debt, which was held primarily by a small number of very wealthy financiers and merchants. In a lot of cases, those people were not the original bondholders to begin with. In a lot of cases, they had bought bonds from, um, you know, poorer people at pennies on the dollar when the Revolutionary War was going badly. And um, now they, they wanted to get paid the full face value of the whole thing. So they're trying to use these are speculators. And I have no problem with speculators per se. If you've got some extra money and you want to go gamble with it in the stock market or commodities or whatever, knock yourself out. But I definitely don't have a lot of love for speculators who want to speculate, and if they profit, want their profits, but if they're in danger of not making a profit, turn to the state to solve their problem. And that's basically what you have here. You have, you have guys who made risky bets on these bonds during the American Revolutionary War and now want to use the state as their collection agency to make sure they get paid The full face value of bonds that in some cases they bought for a fraction of their face value and and with interest, too. So there's a lot of resentment among the Western farmers. 
many of them are in danger of losing their homes and their farms if things don't change soon. There's this resentment in Western Massachusetts towns that have been growing for at least three or four years over these sorts of things by the summer of 1786. These people felt like the representation in the state government didn't adequately represent Western interests. They feel like the state court system that deals with things like collecting debts and taxes is rigged against them. This is a time period where they're still debtors prison, by the way. These people by 1786 are running out of patience. Many of them have been involved in sending grievances to the state government in Boston, repeatedly asking for some sort of reform of some of these things, and they're getting absolutely nothing of substance. Many of these Middle class and poor farmers in Western Massachusetts had served in the Revolutionary War, and many of them were in debt. Now, part, at least a significant part of their financial troubles were actually due to their military service. Think about this. If you're away from your little family farm or your small business in, in a few cases or whatever for three, four, five years fighting in the war, probably your farm or your business is going to end up in pretty bad uh, financial situation. And it's got nothing to do with you being lazy or irresponsible or whatever. It's got to do with the fact that you were away fighting the Redcoats. And now you come home and you're in danger of losing your farm. And to add insult to injury, you're losing your farm to the same guy that bought your um, bond from you during the war for pennies on the dollar and is now encouraging and pressuring the state government to tax you more in order to make sure he gets his investment paid back with interest. That's the same guy that is uh, poised like a vulture to come swoop in and buy up your farm should you lose it. You can understand why to a military veteran who marched around in the snow and got shot at and may have been wounded, this would really be kind of something to piss you off. But we should point out here, though, that the traditional view of the Shazites, as they eventually became known mostly by their enemies, the, these, these rebels in Massachusetts, not all of them were, were horribly poor or anything like that. Some were. But um, not all of them were poor and buried in debt. That's sort of the traditional description that still you can find in some textbooks today. But in fact, in-depth studies of who these rebels were, and we have pretty good records on a lot of this, and um, you know the property they owned and their wealth and so on indicate that a majority of rebels really weren't super poor. And many of those who were super poor in these areas were not part of the rebellion. So there's definitely more going on than just simple anger over poverty. This notion that the rebels were mostly impoverished people who were rising up in some sort of proto-socialist attempt to level society comes mostly from accounts by New England elitists who opposed the Shazites and who favored the state government as it was and the interests it represented and who thought, you know, this is great, tax these people, and if they have a problem with it, crush them. It was the enemies of the the rebels who came up with this, this notion that these are all like super dirt poor people who just want to take the property of the rich. An example of this is Henry Knox, who, um, much as I admire his wartime service, you know, during the Revolutionary War, is a guy who I lose a lot of respect for as soon as the war's over. This is a guy who claimed that 
these people who eventually resist the government of Massachusetts over these grievances wanted to like eliminate all debts to seize the property of the wealthy, to redistribute it to the poor. Um, that's, that's just like a deluded paranoid fantasy. They, what, what these people really wanted was mostly fairly modest reforms having to do with representation and, um, you know, the monetary system and taxes. They weren't, they were not anarchists. As Jefferson himself acknowledged in that excerpt I read you before, these are not these are not anarchists. Whether you think anarchy is good or bad, these were not anarchists, these people who get known as the Shazites. But that's how their enemies in New England portrayed them as these, you know, anarchists who wanted some kind of crazy lynch mob rule or something. Now, to make things worse, the, the creditors to whom... A lot of these uh, Western Massachusetts farmers owed debts were insisting on repayment of those debts in specie and hard money, in other words, in gold and silver. And the fact of the matter is that whether they wanted to pay those debts or not, very few of these Western farmers had any specie whatsoever. There was just like not that much gold and silver floating around in the more frontierish parts of Massachusetts. So in a way, it's sort of like the old trying to get blood from a stone type of a thing, right? You're saying, oh, no, 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 you can only pay these debts to me in gold and silver. And it's like, I literally don't have any. And there's probably not many people in my county who have any. So no matter how hard I work or how productive of a farmer I might be, I'm not going to be able to pay you in gold or silver. Right. That'd be like if you had somebody today who's like, hey, um, you, you owe me a couple thousand dollars and you're like, oh, OK, here's here's the cash. And they say, no, you can only pay me in moon rocks. Well, <laughs> I don't have moon rocks and there's no realistic way for me to get them anytime soon. So you're going to have to take these dollars. Right. So these Western Massachusetts farmers really feel like their backs are up against the wall. And in particular, they felt and again, keep in mind, many of these are combat veterans from multiple years fighting in the Revolutionary War. They're being squeezed by the tax man and by their creditors, both of whom are backed by a state government that they feel, with a lot of justification, does not represent them in terms of either class or of geography. They feel like it represents the wealthy in general, and especially the wealthy eastern kind of Boston and coastal elite. And they feel particularly horribly mistreated by the legal system, too, which was the main instrument of state power in a lot of these western counties in Massachusetts at the time. So as historian Leonard Richards sums up their grievances, quote, How, for example, were farmers to pay debts and taxes with hard money when no hard money was available? And why did honest men have to cope with so many layers in the court system? Was it just so well-connected lawyers and court officials could collect fees at every step of the way? And why was there a state senate? Was it not just an unnecessary waste of the taxpayers' money? And did it not just provide another bastion of privilege for the Boston elite? And why was the government in Boston anyway? Why was it not more centrally located as in the other states? Was it so the mercantile elite could pass oppressive laws when distance and bad weather kept the people's representatives from getting to Boston? Such questions were rarely expressed so boldly, but they had sparked many a complaint about taxes, debts, the shortage of legal tender, and the structure of government. In addition, the legitimacy of the 1780 state constitution had frequently been questioned. So too had the legitimacy of the state's rulers. Was it not the duty of government officials to protect the people rather than oppress them? 
Were most of the current rulers not just as corrupt as King George's ministers? What then had the revolution accomplished? Such thoughts clearly circulated in the West, and the town leaders had tried to politely convey the message. Yet each year, the legislature had ignored their complaints and only added to the misery, end quote. So as these Western Massachusetts farmers are increasingly squeezed, they start to have meetings to organize opposition to the state government. These meetings are very reminiscent of a lot of the meetings in many American cities and towns in the 1760s and 70s against the British taxes and things like that. They're, they're sort of ad, ad hoc committees and, you know, local assemblies and things like that. And when you look at what they started off wanting, they wanted some things that were not that outlandish, especially considering some of the other states at the time were providing these to people, um, such as paper money to enable them to pay their debts uh, since no specie was really available in their area, um, tax relief, and um, some reforms to the state government and how it operated to make it in their eyes, more representative than it was. A lot of them increasingly started to see reforming the state government as the root of the problem. These people, they had a strong tradition of local self-rule, and they had often ignored directions from Boston that they didn't like. But things were getting tense, and at least some of these people were starting to speak in radical terms by 1787. For example... Uh, we have a rare case of kind of a common man speaking uh, his words written down from a meeting, you know, from, from one of these sort of public meetings at a town in Western Massachusetts before Shays Rebellion broke out. And by the way, when he when he says rates, he's referring to taxes. This guy is um, some just sort of average farmer named Plow Jogger. Yeah, that's an interesting name. But anyway, Plow Jogger says this at a meeting in 1786 in Western Massachusetts, quote, I have been greatly abused, have been obliged to do more than my part in the war, been loaded with class rates, town rates, province rates, continental rates, and all rates, been pulled and hauled by sheriffs, constables and collectors, and had my cattle sold for less than they were worth. The great men are going to get all we have, and I think it's time for us to rise up and put a stop to it and have no more courts, nor sheriffs, nor collectors, nor lawyers, end quote. Now, that's quite radical sounding, and, and he's, I think, more radical than, than most were at this time. I mean, he sounds, th there's an actual real life anarchist sounding guy, right? Most of them weren't quite that far, but it shows you where a lot of these average farmers where their heads were at. They thought they were fighting that revolutionary war for the uh, ideals of the Declaration of Independence. They didn't realize that that stuff was not intended to be taken literally by um, some of their homegrown elites after the war. These meetings initially advocated peaceful expressions of the people's grievances to the Massachusetts legislature in Boston, which was uh, at that time called the General Court. However, despite receiving these grievances... The general court decided to adjourn in July of 1786 um, until January 31st of 1787 without doing anything to address any of the disgruntled Westerners' concerns. And when people in the West learned of this, for some of them it seems to have been the proverbial last straw, they were deciding to take more direct action. 
town governments and even some county governments began to hold conventions on how to proceed and what to do from this point on. And these conventions drew up, in some cases, lists of demands, almost like little manifestos, things like a new state constitution, which would be more democratic, which would have no upper house, which would have annual elections, wherein um, distribution of representation would be more equitable throughout the state. Again, many of them felt like the uh, the East was overrepresented against the West, the way this the seats in the uh, state legislature were allocated at the time. They also called for things like, again, moving the state capital to a more accessible location in the middle of the state, uh, reforming the tax system and the legal system and addressing the scarcity of legal tender problem. And they also called for the state legislature to reconvene ASAP in order to start addressing these problems which of course didn't happen. Now, around this time, summer of 1786, uh, groups of protesters, again, many of them war veterans, began to show up and forcibly um, shut down the courts, you know, not, not shooting anybody or anything like that, but just having guys show up in such numbers that, you know, the handful of constables and court officials couldn't possibly, couldn't possibly stand against them and just shut down the courts. And the reason they're targeting the courts is to prevent hearings that are related in particular to debt collection and tax collection. These courts were the most prominent institutions of state government authority in the West, and these were the ones most likely to be harming or threatening the sorts of men who were participating in this rebellion. So no one's getting no one's getting killed or anything like that, and relatively few people are getting hurt, but they are succeeding in enforcing a lot of these, uh, preventing a lot of these state courts from being able to function. And by the winter of 1786 to seven mobs ranging in size from hundreds to, in at least one case, about a thousand men are shutting down the courts in five Massachusetts counties in the Western part of the state. Now, what about this guy, Daniel Shays? A lot of people know his name, but know virtually nothing about him. The guy whose name eventually becomes part of the the label for this rebellion. Well, Daniel Shays had been a captain in the Revolutionary War and had served in that conflict for five long years, starting at the very beginning in 1775. And on paper, anyway, he was a reasonably successful farmer by the standards of Western Massachusetts. His farm was ranked in the uh, second 20% of town assessments in the tax records. But despite the fact that he had a decent piece of property, he was, like so many of these guys, in bad economic shape in the aftermath of the Revolutionary War. Shays had served in a lot of noteworthy battles in the Revolutionary War, including Bunker Hill and Saratoga, to name just a couple, and um, had resigned his commission in 1780 after being wounded. Now, when he resigned, you have to understand this guy was never paid during or immediately after his military service. He spent five years fighting, including in some very nasty battles, and was wounded and got nothing. And then when he gets home from the war, he's almost immediately summoned to court because of unpaid debts, which he had no way to pay no matter how much he wanted to because he hadn't been paid for his military service. 
Now, when he resigned his commission, and by all accounts, he served very honorably and, you know, showed showed uh, bravery in combat and all that, all that kind of stuff. When he resigned from the service, the Marquis de Lafayette had actually given him a ceremonial sword in recognition of his service. And Daniel Shays very quickly had to sell that in order to get a little bit of cash to make some payments on his debts. But it wasn't nearly enough in his problems like so many of these uh, guys who were part of this movement that eventually bears his name his problems were far from over and in fact uh, his, his financial problems continued to worsen now shays was involved with this resistance movement from at least august of 1786 and it was around november that he started to become a leader of this movement you know i guess as a guy who had been a, a mid-level officer he had a certain you know, leadership way about him that people would probably naturally respond to. So I'm sure many of the guys from his area knew who he was and knew his service record and everything, but others even who didn't know him probably, uh, he would have had just that leadership way about him. Now, these rebels are often referred to Shazites, especially after the fact, but this was not what they called themselves. They mostly called themselves regulators. And, um, it was mostly their enemies who started eventually calling them Shazites. Now, the term regulators in this context is a reference to a resistance movement in colonial North Carolina in the 1760s against uh, very corrupt, elitist colonial government practices there. And so the rebels themselves are consciously hearkening back to that. At its peak, active members of the Shazite movement or the regulation probably numbered in the neighborhood of 4,000 men. The state government at the time was headed by a governor named James Bowden, and James Bowden had been elected governor in 1785. Prior to him, the governor of Massachusetts had been John Hancock, the famous guy with the big signature from the revolution. And... John Hancock's governorship had probably been one of the reasons why the rebellion didn't break out earlier, because Hancock had at least some sympathy for and popularity with the common man and did at least a few things to try and make things easier on the common man as far as tax collection and so on. Even though he was a wealthy merchant himself, you know, was a member of the Boston economic elite, but I guess he was in his heart sort of a small D Democrat. But again, 1785, he's gone and this guy James Bowden is in and Bowden is very much a hard liner on issues like debt collection and tax collection, as were many of the other people running the Massachusetts government at the time. And those running the state decide very quickly that they are going to suppress this resistance that's breaking out in the West, that's shutting down the courts. And their main tool to do so is the militia, which in theory is supposed to be at their command. And thanks to the Constitution of 1780, most Massachusetts militia officers are no longer elected by their own men, but are instead appointed by the governor. However, on the ground out in the West, the reality is a bit more problematic. There, a significant percentage of the militia, regardless of whether they were appointed officers, you know, appointed by the state, were still sympathetic to one degree or another with the rebels. For example, in September, a group of regulators shut down the state court at Worcester and Governor Bowden ordered the local militia to mobilize against them. But they refused. And in fact, many of them blatantly joined the regulators instead. Now, upon hearing of this, you know, questionable loyalty of some of the militia out West, 
there was a huge meeting of pro-government people in Boston to endorse a document drafted up by Samuel Adams and a a handful of wealthy merchants in Boston praising the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780 and denouncing the insurgents in very, very aggressive terms. Now, you might be surprised to see Samuel Adams there, and I am too. Um, Samuel Adams turns out to have some really contradictory, in my opinion, views on liberty. Basically, he thinks that um, when a monarchy oppresses you, it's very bad and you should resist with everything you have. But if a republic is oppressing you, it's not really oppressing you because it's a republic. And so you need to submit to it or face horrible consequences. Turns out he's actually quite the statist, as long as the state in question is Republican in form. So yes, Sam Adams, the great revolutionary radical, or at least seeming radical, and leader of the Sons of Liberty, was in this crisis an ultra-hardliner in favor of the state and against the rebels. He wanted all who participated in this rebellion to be put to death. I mean, he's absolutely bloodthirsty in some of his uh, pronouncements during Shays' rebellion. He wrote that in monarchies, quote, the crime of treason and rebellion may admit of being pardoned or lightly punished, but the man who dares rebel against the laws of a republic ought to suffer death, end quote. Well, in late September 1786, Daniel Shays and Luke Day, who was another leader within the the rebellion movement, decided to try to shut down the state Supreme Court when it met in Springfield. And they mobilized several hundred of their men to do so. But a militia commander, a state militia commander, mobilized a similar number of pro-government, you know, loyal militia to protect the court. And so what happened was when Shays and his guys showed up and they found a force that was equal to or perhaps even a little bit uh, bigger than his own and probably better armed, too, I would imagine. Shays decides not to attack, but simply to protest, though with the protest going on, the court adjourned and left anyway. So it was this weird kind of almost like, I guess, a draw. Now, this instance of the state Supreme Court basically being uh, intimidated into adjourning further angered a lot of the state's supporters. And Samuel Adams helped draft a riot act, literally the riot act, right? Which was passed by the Massachusetts legislature. And among other things, the riot act in question authorized state government officials to kill any rioters or resistors who failed to disperse. And it also authorized the state to seize all the property of any rioters and to have those rioters whipped and imprisoned and once imprisoned to be whipped on a regular basis every several days. It's freaking crazy. This is the guy who, you know, a little over a decade previously had been in the streets leading the Sons of Liberty rioting against British tax collectors. And now he's saying that anybody who causes the slightest disturbance for Massachusetts authorities needs to have all of his stuff seized and taken and needs to be imprisoned and whipped on a regular basis. The Massachusetts legislature also suspended habeas corpus, enabling state authorities to seize and imprison someone without charges or trial indefinitely. I'm sure had the term been available, they would have talked about the Shays movement as terrorists. I guarantee you, if the word terrorist had been around, that's what they would have used to describe these people. The Massachusetts 
legislature also passed a militia act that said that any militia soldier or officer who abandoned his post or who verbally encouraged anyone else to do so would suffer the death penalty. Now, the legislature did pass a few token measures supposedly to um, mollify the insurgents, such as allowing them to pay some of their taxes in kind rather than in specie and um, offering a pardon to anyone who would immediately take a loyalty oath to the state. But these few things did not appease the regulators. And in November, tensions heated up even more when several leaders of the movement were arrested by state authorities. And all these things, rather than diffusing the rebellion, only increased it. In early January of 1787, Governor Bowdoin, without legislative authorization from the Massachusetts General Court, decided to build an army of, he hoped, 4,400 men to be put under the command of General Benjamin Lincoln. It's like literally the governor's private army. The legislature, I think, wasn't even in session. He's just like, hey, let's put together some money and build an army to deal with this problem. Now, Benjamin Lincoln, by the way, was a Revolutionary War general, probably most notorious for the single biggest American surrender of the entire war when he surrendered an entire American army to the British at Charleston. And so he's put in command of this private army to go try to suppress the rebellion. Now, because he was acting on his own without the legislature, Governor Bowdoin turned to wealthy Boston businessmen in order to fund this private army. And he ended up getting 153 of them and also himself chipped in um, a bunch of money in order to basically hire a bunch of mercenaries, for lack of a better term, and send them to go crush Shays' Rebellion. Most of these recruits, not surprisingly, came from eastern Massachusetts, where the government was generally favored. Now, they didn't end up with 4,400, but they ended up with about 3,000, and they were much better armed and equipped than were the Shazites. Now, Shays and the other insurgent leaders, when they learned of the army that Bowdoin was building, decided to try to take the federal arsenal at Springfield, where there was housed a huge quantity of arms and ammunition. Historian Leonard Richards writes, quote, had the insurgents gained control of it, they would have been better armed than the state, end quote. But instead, a major general named William Shepard in the area managed to get there first with about 1,200 pro-state militia. And it's Shepard's state militia who are going to defend the federal arsenal. Leonard Richards writes of this, quote, technically, Shepard had no more right to seize the arsenal than did Daniel Shays and his followers. The arsenal did not belong to the state of Massachusetts. It belonged to the federal government. Hence, to use the arsenal and its weapons, Shepard needed written authorization from Secretary of War Henry Knox. He did not have it, yet he knew that Knox was not going to make a fuss if he violated the law. So without waiting for authorization, Shepard armed his men with arsenal weapons and readied the arsenal's cannons and howitzers to be used against the insurgents, end quote. Isn't it funny how the government is willing to overlook what is technically lawbreaking when it's being done on behalf of someone uh, to further the government's interests, but they're not nearly as tolerant of lawbreaking by people who are trying to defend their rights? Kind of an interesting double standard, isn't it? Well, anyway, on January 25th, the insurgents launched a very badly coordinated multi-pronged assault on the arsenal. 
It was intended to be a three-pronged assault, but it ended up being only two because one of the prongs apparently didn't get the memo or something. And so you have, you know, two-thirds of the people who were supposed to attack the uh, arsenal are doing it. And they're doing so through about four feet deep of snow. And a lot of, you know, the Shays rebels aren't well-armed or equipped or anything like that. And they're attacking this uh, arsenal where the pro-state militia have now gotten their hands on those weapons first and are going to use them. When Shepard's men begin firing with the heavy guns to defend the arsenal, uh, very quickly four Shazites are killed and a bunch more are wounded and those who are able to quickly break and run like hell. Now this was a pretty bad defeat for the rebellion, but the rebellion was still not over. It had been seriously damaged, but not, not, not knocked out decisively. But uh, then Benjamin Lincoln's army, remember the private army that had been built by Governor Bowden and Boston businessmen, uh, began moving into the area where the rebels had fled after hearing about the fight at the arsenal. And they were much better armed. The Shazites had no artillery, and we believe that actually less than half of them even had muskets. Now, Shays' army is uh, sort of retreating and being pursued by Lincoln's army. And then um, in early February, Lincoln's army is closing in. They march overnight through a snowstorm and end up surprising Shays' forces, who had actually been sleeping at the time. And um, the rebels quickly scatter as soon as they're attacked. About 150 prisoners are taken, but very few, if any of them, are really leaders of the movement. Shays and some of the other leaders managed to escape Ultimately, across the state lines, some of them went into New Hampshire, some into Vermont. So the, the rebellion pretty much fizzled, uh, you know, broke down into pieces. And uh, also Lincoln's army started to disperse pretty quickly um, after this battle as well. As Leonard Richards puts it, after this success of Lincoln's army attacking uh, Shays' troops, Shays' rebellion, quote, just died away with a whimper. There were a number of skirmishes but few of them amounted to much, end quote. Now, the state decided on kind of a two-tiered policy. They would be, um, you know, exhibit clemency towards the rank-and-file lower ranks of the rebellion, but they would be harsh against the ringleaders. Leonard Richards describes what rank-and-file rebels faced, quote, First, they had to surrender their arms, admit that they had rebelled against the state and its rulers, take an oath of allegiance, and pay a fee of nine pence to a justice of the peace who certified that they had met these conditions. Then, for a period of up to three years, they were disqualified from voting, holding office, serving on juries, teaching school, working in taverns and inns, and selling liquor. After May 1st, 1788, they could have these restrictions lifted if they could prove to the satisfaction of the legislature that they had become good, law-abiding citizens loyal to the state and its rulers. In exchange for accepting these punishments, they escaped prosecution by the state, and thus the possibility of being whipped, fined, or hanged. In essence, then, the state offered them what is now called a plea bargain. End quote. Now, 18 of the rebel leaders who were captured were convicted and sentenced to death, but all but two of those had their sentences either overturned on appeal, or commuted, or were pardoned outright. Now, one thing that ended up being very positive uh, for the fate of the rebels was in April of 1787, there was an election for governor and Governor Bowden was clobbered by John Hancock, who, as governor, 
uh, quickly pardoned most of those who had participated in the rebellion, uh, save Daniel Shays and a handful of other leaders. And under Hancock, the state government did do at least a little bit to help ease the burdens on a lot of these people to the point where they wouldn't be quite so, um, you know, rebellious and angry. The state government did things like cutting taxes, um, some other reforms to kind of light, lighten the burden on these people as far as debt collections and tax collections went. Shays himself actually remained in hiding in one of the more remote parts of Vermont until he was pardoned in 1788, after which he did return to Massachusetts. He later did get a small pension for his Revolutionary War service, but he lived out the rest of his life as a poverty-stricken, heavy drinker. Now, historian Leonard Richards, in answer to the question of what caused this rebellion, writes this, quote, The answer is twofold. The new state government and its attempt to enrich the few at the expense of the many. That was made clear from the beginning in the words that the insurgents chose to describe themselves. They never depicted themselves as dissident debtors, nor did they refer to themselves as rebels, insurgents, or Shazites. Those were words pinned on them by their enemies. They saw themselves as regulators and made that explicit to all recruits." Now, again, that term regulator had meaning to the people of this time as denoting men who were standing up rightfully against a tyrannical government in defense of justice and of their rights. And Richards points out that this terminology invoked, quote, a tradition that whenever distant authorities got out of hand or whenever outsiders threatened a bona fide settlers land holdings, the people had an obligation to rise up and restore communal order. This way of thinking, moreover, had been strengthened by the actions and rhetoric of the American Revolution. The Declaration of Independence especially was unequivocal. Washington, Knox, and Bowdoin may not have taken these words seriously, but others did. To them, the people's obligation to throw off destructive and tyrannical government was not only clear, but it had been further sanctified by the thousands who fought and died for the Revolution." End quote. Overall, the bloodshed of Shays' Rebellion was pretty minor. Four Shazites had been killed in the fighting, and of course two were hanged later, and only one guy was killed on the state side. Several dozen more, of course, were wounded on each side, but in terms of casualties, this was really not, not a big body count thing. But as a spur to those who wanted a more centralized federal government, it had an effect that was all out of proportion to its casualties. And as a, um, as a signpost or an indicator of the progress of Thermidor for the American Revolution, I think it's a huge milestone as well. Now, I want to talk briefly about the writing of the Constitution. Not in, not in huge detail, but the Philadelphia Convention and the Constitution that ends up coming out of it and ultimately gets ratified really did for the federal government what the Constitution of 1780 had done for the Massachusetts state government, i.e. it made it a much more powerful, more centralized, and more elitist government than it had been before. And Shays' rebellion and fears on the part of the elite of potential future eruptions like that were a huge additional oomph to the movement among some members of the American elite to create a much more centralized and powerful federal government. And this movement, which was eventually known as Federalists, were the ones who wrote and ratified the Constitution. 
um, perhaps very importantly, Shays' Rebellion is supposedly what brought George Washington out of private life, where he had been since he resigned his command in December of 1783 and uh, bring him into American politics, where, of course, as we all know, he became a key figure in creating a more powerful central government and then, of course, became the first president of that more powerful central government. He had a he had a major hand in creating for a long time. People didn't think George Washington had much to do with the Constitution, but we now know that he really did. It was just a lot of what he did was sort of behind the scenes stuff. Now, I will do an episode or perhaps even a mini series in the future on the writing and the ratification of the Constitution. And as you might expect, my take on that is very different from the standard one, the standard hagiography of, you know, these wonderful demigods creating this perfect system, which is so perfect to got us to where we are today. Isn't that great? But for now, because of time, again, I'm not going to go through like the details of the convention and the ratification process and whatever. But I will point out that many of those who were involved in the writing and the passing of the Constitution were holders of government bonds, often that they'd bought, again, at cut rate prices from soldiers and other average people during the war when no one wanted them. And now that the war's over, they wanted to create a much more powerful central government explicitly that could tax and tax a lot in order to get those bonds repaid full value with interest. So again, these guys are using the power of the state to make sure that they profit from the, um, the risky gamble they took by investing their money in these bonds. Well, long story short, between the passage of the Constitution and Washington's election as president and Washington's choice of Alexander Hamilton to be the Secretary of the Treasury, these Federalists who want a bigger, stronger government, in part for philosophical reasons, but let's be honest, in part because it would benefit their bottom line, these guys got their way. So next time we'll take a look at the Whiskey Rebellion and see another case where resistance sparks to the government, this time to the federal government, the new federal government, in its first few years of existence. The Whiskey Rebellion is typically thought of as a Pennsylvania thing, but in fact there was resistance to the whiskey excise tax throughout the inland or backcountry areas, um, at least as far as from South Carolina all the way up to Pennsylvania. So. Um, it wasn't just in Pennsylvania that people were seriously resisting this tax. It was just that for various reasons, Pennsylvania is uh, Western Pennsylvania in particular is the place that the federal government largely at the prodding of Alexander Hamilton decides is the place where the federal government is going to make, you know, a really uh, dramatic example of using overwhelming force to crush any resistance to government authority. So that'll be next time the whiskey rebellion and then, of course, I'll also have some closing thoughts about both Shay's Rebellion and the Whiskey Rebellion towards the end of that episode. If you have comments that are uh, relevant to this particular episode, please feel free to leave them in the comment section for this episode at my website, profcj.org. And you can also email me questions, comments, either about a particular episode or just in general or what have you. My email address is profcj at profcj.org. 
Remember, you can also connect to and follow the show on Facebook and Twitter, especially Twitter. You know, I, I post things on Facebook, but Twitter is is where I, I guess I'm just more of a Twittery person. Um, that's that's where I'm I'm more present and post more frequently and interact more. So you can also subscribe to the podcast itself in iTunes and Stitcher, places like that. And remember, there are ways you can help support the show. If you like this show, you want to see it continue um, to exist and new episodes to keep coming out and to see the show keep improving and getting bigger and better all the time. Um, I can't do that without your guys's help. So, um, one way you can help out the show, of course, is to spread the word about it in any way you can to people you think might appreciate it. Um, several of you have, have really been doing a lot of that lately as far as, uh, posting stuff on different discussion boards and places like that. And that's awesome. I really appreciate that. I think that there's more credibility when a listener posts something somewhere about, hey, check out this show, than if I did it myself. If I just posted on a discussion board, hey, come listen to my show, people would be like, yeah, whatever, you know, shameless self-promotion. But when it's a, a person who's not a, you know, who's not making the show, but who's just a fan of it, I think it carries more weight. So I really do appreciate that. All, all of you who have done that sort of thing, either recently or um, in, in the past, big thanks from me course i can always use financial help as well um and you can help the show financially either by donating directly profcj.org slash donate there you can donate via paypal or bitcoin and you can also help me out financially by purchasing items from amazon.com by first going through the amazon affiliate links found on my website huge thanks again to everybody who's um been donating or buying from my amazon links recently um got got a lot of uh a lot of help since I talked about, you know, one of my summer courses getting canceled and that being a little bit of a financial issue for me. So I appreciate that. I hope you all will continue to be generous. Um, if you appreciate this show and what I do here, I, I hope if you're able, I understand if you're broke or whatever, I've been there many times myself. But uh, if you are able and, and you like what I'm doing here, um, I hope you can find it in your heart to uh, throw a little bit my way. And again, don't feel bad if you can only spare a couple bucks. I've been broke myself many times. I'm very grateful for, for any amount of help. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. This has been Prof. CJ, your humble hazardous history helmsman, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.